Well, grab your Bibles with me this morning. Turn to the letter of Ephesians found in your New Testament. Today we continue our sermon series through the letter of Ephesians as we move into chapter 3. I praise God for His work in and through us as we've now spent roughly 27 hours together in studying chapters 1 and 2. God's Word is so rich and is such a blessing to us uh, as we get to possess it and get to study it like we do. I pray that you truly cherish our time in the Word each week on Sundays and that it is a, a real catalyst to your time in the Word throughout the week. May God grow us, sanctify us, and cause us to well up with worship for Him as we seek His will and ways in His holy Word. Let's look now to chapter 3, and today we'll be studying verse 1 and 2. I want to jump right in with much to cover and read to us verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Other translations say here, for this cause, for this reason. For what cause, for what reason does Paul do or say what he is about to? Well, it's the things he just finished saying in the second half of Chapter 2, mainly that God has ordained to save both Jew and Gentile into his eternal covenant family, and both together are made up into the holy temple of the Lord. Because God has chosen to do this, for this reason, Paul says, I do what I do and I say what I say. He's saying, here is what God has done. Here is what God has included me into. This is so amazing and worthwhile that I now live my life this way. The way he's about to describe. This morning we're going to consider what that life is and what it should look like for each of us who belong to Christ. For he has grafted us into his eternal family Look back at the verse with me. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's imprisoned. For many of us, this is a strange idea. It was interesting this last week to see a headline in our national news about a hairdresser in Texas was willing to go to jail for her convictions and beliefs instead of appeasing the governing authorities' demands on her. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of this or to say whether she was right or wrong about this action, but it hopefully brought, maybe a little closer to home, the idea that being put in jail is not just something for hardened criminals. There are many everyday people who can face the reality of suffering and loss of the everyday privileges of life as they are willing to stand for their convictions in the face of real jail time, or as they maybe are faced with unjust persecution in jail time. There's a plethora of reasons by which the average citizen could find themselves in prison. This is the testimony of Paul. And of many Christians who have come before us, church, in history, and many Christians this very day who are in prison for standing on the Word of God. It's an important crossroads for us to consider because it reveals in us the depth of our commitment in faith to Christ. And to what degree we really have died to self and now live to Christ. If you were to find out that you're about to be put in prison, justly or unjustly, how undone would you be? Or have we died to self and now lived to Christ, whatever that might mean? 
the reality is that Paul spent many of his years after his conversion in jail for preaching the gospel. A gospel that reconciles Jew and Gentile into one united family. I want to take a moment this morning and read the account of just what happened that led up to Paul's imprisonment. Look with me in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read a good chunk of the rest of this chapter and part of chapter 22. Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the court that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came into the steps, he actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt? and led the 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus, Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Sicily, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all of the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait, rise, and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name? When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that it is one synagogue after another. I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging and to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Let me stop there. Church, this is a powerful testimony. It speaks of Paul's conversion. It speaks of his former life. One of direct and deadly persecution of Christians. His commitment to the cause of the Jewish zealots. And his conversion in Christ to a new cause. To a new commission. A commitment to spread the gospel despite what it would cost him. Paul formerly called Saul of Tarsus. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. A relentless persecutor of the earliest Christian church. His authoritative hands were covered in the blood of many Christian martyrs. As he himself admits, as we just read in Acts 22.20, when the blood of Stephen was being shed. He's standing there, approving, watching over the garments of those who were killing him. See Paul in his former life as well-respected, as well-known, accomplished, and effective. Paul stood before Christ, stood against Christ and, and his church. But God ordained to save Paul, to transform him and his entire reason and purpose for living. This would mean that Paul would now stand on the receiving end of great persecution from the very people he was once a part of. Instead of being bitter, though, at his being persecuted, Paul embraces his chains as a part of his sacrifice to carry on the cause. Again, what is the cause? It's the testimony of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, by whom both Jew and Gentile are forgiven from their sins and saved into God's eternal family, the church. The cause is the great commission that Jesus gave to the disciples. Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Consider what we just read a largely Jewish crowd 
quietly listened to every word Paul said until he testified that Jesus told him he was to go away to the Gentiles. As he said in verse 21. That moment that Paul testifies to the crowd, they lose their minds and break into frenzy. Why? Because the Jews hated the Gentiles. And for Paul, this once famous and faithful Pharisee, to say that God's plan of redemption includes the Gentiles was completely out of bounds to them. So it it is the Gentile cause, as he calls it, that is a major reason for his early imprisonment. When Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus and says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now we understand what's involved in this. Before moving on, consider with me the fact that Paul spent much of his saved life in jail. He speaks of himself in chains in this letter three times. Here in chapter 3, verse 1. We'll see it again in chapter 4, verse 1. And then in chapter 6, verse 20. It is believed that while he's in prison, Paul wrote his four pastoral letters called epistles. These letters were addressed to the believers in Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and also to Philemon. Church, slow for a moment with me and consider the sovereign plan of God to do His mighty work despite our circumstances. Especially when those circumstances, church, are not at all what we want them to be. And yet look at the ways that God used Paul in all of these years of imprisonment. That's still a blessing to us today as we study this very letter he wrote. Paul was on top of the world as a Pharisee. A persecutor of Christians. But now he stands as a converted Christian himself. Purposed by God to do so many huge things. For the spread of the gospel, the launch of the church, the writing of much of the New Testament. Would he have chosen chains without Christ at the helm of his heart? Absolutely not. Would he have embraced them? No. But see with me that Paul is committed to the cause of Christ. The spread of the gospel, no matter the cost. Look at the verse again. He's a willing prisoner for Christ. For the gospel. And on behalf of his blood-bought brothers, sisters, those who are already saved, and those who will be saved. Church, I ask you, is this your conviction as well? Are you ready to give up the things that you love about your life? the routines you love, the people you love, if God's assignment is for you to suffer so that the gospel is at work in and through you for Christ, for the gospel, and on behalf of blood-bought brothers and sisters, those saved and those who God ordains to be saved. See with me, Paul, who is physically imprisoned and suffering, but he's spiritually free full of joy because of who He is in Christ. Oh, how I pray this is our reality in Christ. No matter the hardships we face in this life, we rest in Christ, our joy, our strength. Here Paul's heart and commitment to live for Christ in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. We must not just have enough Christ to adopt 
religious practices or habits. Not just enough to be bold to speak up. We must be willing to truly die to self, to live to Christ, to suffer if that is what God ordains for the testimony of the cause to be bright. Jesus said plainly, what the Christian life is, church. Hear his words, Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The life of the true Christian church is a life of crucifixion. The life of the true Christian is a life of crucifixion. Can I press the point on our current circumstances that we face in this springtime of 2020? Are you guilty of complaining lately? Of being tired that your normal conveniences and preferred ways of living are not happening because of COVID-19 and or our government policies and procedures. Beloved, can I remind you that you are still in the comfort of your own home with a fridge full of good food and loved ones all around you. You're not in jail. Not yet. But even if you were, Christ is enough. We must be oh so careful to think the Christian life is a life full of ease and privilege and freedom. Things going the way we want them to be. Christian, you do not belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. Is your bank account not where you want it? Is your car not how you want it? Is your marriage not how you want it? Are your kids not how you want them? I ask you, what does Christ want for you? Maybe those things are just what they need to be. Because it's how God wants to show a watching world that your joy and your identity is not in those things, but it's in Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Let me ask you, this reason, this cause, is it yours? Are you ready to be a prisoner for Christ on behalf of unbelievers? Especially unbelievers that you have hated? The kind of people who have priorities and lifestyle that you can't stand? Beloved, how are you stewarding your days? How are you taking up your cross? How are you guilty of making your life about you? About your feelings? About your preferences? Instead of making it about Christ and the cause? May we truly repent Not just with words that fade away, but with action that moves us forward in righteousness. May we do this for the cause of Christ and for those that He will save.
Let's move to verse 2. Paul continues, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul assumes that they have heard his testimony of God's grace in his life and God's grace intended for those whom he would save as a result of Paul's preaching. This is an important point of clarity because it is the why we do what we do. Many times people can look at our life as a Christian and just see a religious devotion. They see it as a commitment or a subscription to a, a group of zealous people that think like you think or that cherish the things that you cherish. But they don't see that it's something that they need. They see it as something that's good for you, but not for them. Oh Lord, open the eyes of the spiritually blind to see and savor the utter life change that it is to belong to Christ. It is so important that people see that we are committed to the cause to the point of real suffering. Not because we're simply zealous for religious belonging or belief, but because God's grace has utterly transformed our lives. I was recently talking to a longtime associate who I hadn't talked to in many years. We were catching up, asking each other what we had been up to and how we were doing. He was asking about Jennifer and the family. And I got to share our now six-year journey for foster care. The 46 children we've had a privilege of loving in our home. The two that we've adopted. He was floored at the sacrifice and the length of time and devotion to so many kids. But I had to tell him, it was, it's not us. It's Christ in us. It's only by God's grace that He's transformed our hearts. That He's revealing Himself in this way. It was a sobering moment, though, when He proceeded to dismiss that part of my testimony, saying, irregardless of your religious devotion, what you are doing is something special, and it comes from a big and generous heart. And there is the sobering reality of eyes that are blind and ears that are deaf to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and His amazing grace. But for those who will have or will be given eyes to see and ears to hear, church, we must testify God's grace. And we must do it way more than we do. Church, don't take the credit. Don't let the conversation just stay on the horizontal like any two heathens can allow it to be. You belong to Christ. You must take it to Christ every time. Or you waste the very moments of our life that God's put us here to preach His gospel to those He puts in our path. I don't care if you're running late. I don't care if you don't think you have time. We must reprioritize our life to include the truths of Christ. No matter what persecution it brings, no matter what relationships it might change. Why? Because it is for the eternal good of those that God will save that we testify God's grace before every person He puts in our path. Paul is clear to share the why. To share the why he is willing to suffer the cause. The stewardship of God's grace that was given to him and for others. This is the similar thing that he, he said in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 25. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul sees his assignment to be a good steward of what God's called him to. To be a good manager of God's grace and his testimony and his teaching. My question is, do you see this as a call in your life? To do this, we must be clear to present the grace of God to those that we witness to. 
It is so important to Paul that his brothers and sisters in Christ rightly understand God's grace. Why? Because it's the why we do what we do. Church, if we miss the full measure of God's grace, we miss the power of the gospel and the wonder of what God has done and who we are in Him and what He has caused us to to do every day with our lives. Grace. Unmerited favor or an undeserved gift given from an unobligated giver. The Word of Truth Catechism tells us that saving grace is God's love, forgiveness, and redemption freely and effectively given in Jesus to the elect who are undeserving of this. We must see that God's saving grace is a gift. It's a gift from God and only a gift that God can give. God is not obligated to give His saving grace. His obligation to our sin is justice and wrath. And fallen mankind is not deserving to receive God's grace. Again, we deserve, because of our sin, God's judgment and wrath. If we are going to have a full and right understanding of grace, we must start with sin. Because if one thinks wrongly of sin, he thinks wrongly of grace. Paul says, as we studied in the early parts of chapter 2 in Ephesians, that we've been, that all we who have been saved were dead in our trespasses and sins, like the rest of mankind. Spiritually dead, bankrupt. This is the constant and clear diagnosis of fallen man in Holy Scripture. We are spiritually dead. All humans conceived of man and woman after Adam are spiritually dead. It's not just that some parts of us are sinful and other parts are pure. Every part of our being is ruled by, affected by our sin. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, our our decision-making processes, our goals, our motives, and even our physical bodies. We must see how amazing God's grace is by having a right view, a biblical view of what it is to be dead in sin unable to do anything to help ourselves in any way, and a right biblical view of God's wrath due sin, that we have nothing worthy of pardon or reward. Only then, only when we see that clearly, do we really understand grace, the power of grace, just how amazing it is, how it changes everything. The gospel that sets us free is what we as Christians are commissioned to preach to the world about God's amazing, saving grace. This is what Paul aims to be a good steward of, and we must as well, church. The Word of Truth Catechism says this about the Gospel. The Gospel is the good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life, sacrificial, substitutional death, and victorious resurrection from the grave, these sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserve. And they are reconciled to an eternally secure relationship with God. For those here today, whom God is giving ears to hear and eyes to see this gospel, and it is blowing your mind that God, the holy God, would do such a thing for an absolutely undeserving person like you, guilty as you can be. If you see the beauty of His grace and love, the, the, the sacrifice of, of Christ in your place, the victory of His resurrection in your place, then confess your sin to Him and trust your life to Him as, as Lord and Savior and be saved. Only through Christ, only by dying to self to live to Christ is one saved. There is no other way to be reborn, to be empowered by the living God, to live for Him the rest of your days, to have eternal purposes, to the most simple things of what it is to be a mother or a father or a husband or a wife, to be a worker, to be a servant, 
to be a coach, to be a student for Christ and His glory. For those whom God has chosen to give His saving grace, church, we have much to praise Him for. For His glorious and amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said it well, Because God is gracious, therefore sinful men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It is not because of anything in them or that can ever be in them that they are saved, but because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. Church, in the bounty of God's amazing grace, we are utterly and completely transformed. Do you get this? Does this wreck you? Does it move you? Church, this is our why. Why we live our lives differently on this side of faith in Christ. Why we now trust Him and live for Him. Why we, why we will suffer for Him. Because of God's grace, we are truly motivated by the working of God's grace in and through us. Because of God's grace, we are obedient to fulfill Christ's commission to testify to others this gospel. Paul says he willingly embraces the cause that puts him in prison because it is for Christ and for those whom Christ will save into our eternal family. And now in verse 2 he says it is because of the gospel at work in him and for this he has been called to share with others. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How are we stewarding God's grace? I want to look at this in two ways that Paul emphasizes it. The first, how are you applying the gospel to every part of your life? How is it for you? Because all too often we're guilty of seeing how it saves, but we lose sight of how it moves and motivates and affects every part of our life. As Christians, our stewardship of God's grace in our own lives is essential. I've said it in other sermons, when a Christian is in sin, they are simply misapplying the gospel to that area of their life. They have stepped out of who they are in Christ, and they are focusing on the flesh and living out of the flesh. The flesh that causes us to not be satisfied in Christ, but to look to be satisfied in what others think of us. To look to be satisfied in how we feel. In what the flesh wants in its carnal state. Church, we must be good stewards of the gospel in that we must apply it to every area of our lives. Mother, Father, how does the gospel affect why and how you parent? Why and how you put up with kids that are struggling or annoying? Workers, laborers, business owners. How does the gospel affect why and how you do what you do in your job? Married people, how does the gospel affect your interaction and your living out your role within your marriage for the glory of God? I mean, we can just go on and on in all of these facets of life. And it's only when we put aside Christ when we let our flesh take over and our feelings and our fleshly longings, that it goes south, it goes bad, it undoes us. Because when Christ is at the helm and the gospel is at work, we will endure much suffering. Not in some compromised state, but with real joy. Because of who we are in Christ. 
because of the gospel's reality in my life. We are called not only to be saved by God's grace, but to build our lives on God's grace. It is the power of God, not just for salvation, but for all of our lives. This is why our mission statement as a church is to glorify God through lives that are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the application of God's grace to every facet of our life. Because God's work in and through the gospel of Jesus is the hub to all that we are and do as a church and as individuals. Pastor Tim Keller once said it well, the gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is like the hub of a wheel of truth. The gospel is not the ABC, but rather the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. Great Martin Luther once said, The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. Fellow Christian, you must do all things in step with the gospel. And when the flesh rears up, when temptation is knocking at the door and you're tempted to lean in, when, when anger and selfishness is getting ready to go to work, may we slow and go to prayer and, and preach the gospel to ourselves to be reoriented to the truths of God and be moved in a way that glorifies God. To speak in a way that glorifies God. To be quiet in a way that glorifies God. This is how we're good stewards of God's grace in our own lives. Let me give you an example of how this works in some helpful application. Consider this situation in your life. I can confidently say we've all been in this situation before. So it will apply to every one of us. Someone you love lets you down. Or they miss an expectation you had for them. How does the gospel counsel the way you handle that? Speak into it. Empower you. How do you process your hurt? How do you move forward in interacting with that person? If you do this according to your flesh, you will be emotional. You will be timid. You will be mad. You will look for vengeance and look to keep score. There are far too many times where we're guilty of setting the gospel aside. The grace of God that we've received, that we are made new in, we are to live out. But instead, often we live out of our flesh and therefore our relationships struggle. What does it look like to steward the gospel of grace in this life situation? A few considerations for you. Number one, you... When the gospel is applied to it, you have grace for their sin. Because you see that apart from God's grace, you are no different than them. You are a guilty sinner too. This helps you not elevate yourself over them. Number two, you see that it is their sin that is causing you to hurt. And therefore you don't make it personal. You see their lostness, if an unbeliever, and their need for Christ. And or you see that if they belong to Christ, they are still growing in sanctification. This helps you to have the hurt be less focused on them personally 
and more on the reality of sin's presence in the world. That's a gospel view. Number three, you forgive them. Not when they earn it or say sorry, but because God has forgiven you. You do this as soon as you identify the hurt so that it doesn't drag you down and so that it honors God and the testimony of the gospel that you've been a recipient of. You give it to God, knowing that God is going to exercise His perfect justice by putting that on Christ on the cross, paid for by Christ, or by putting it on them for eternity as they suffer His righteous wrath. Finally, you look to not be satisfied in that person's performance and how it might impact your life because you are satisfied in Christ and all that He has accomplished for you and all that He has given you, every spiritual blessing now and forever. In other words, you say, I have Christ and nothing is better than that. So this doesn't get me down. Church, the stewardship of the gospel in your everyday moment-by-moment life is essential if we're going to enjoy what God has done in His grace and going to tell the truth about that grace to others. See it not just about you, but what God intends to do through you in others. Again, this is why Paul says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. This leads us to the second emphasis of Paul in this verse. The stewardship of God's grace is how it is intended to benefit others. I ask you, how are you testifying God's grace for all those that God puts in your path? Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We, the church, need to take very seriously this battle cry of Christ in order to to fulfill the orders of our general. We are to be His witnesses. What does a witness do? He or she testifies. It is the gospel of Jesus, the saving grace of God, that is to be testified, preached, shared. It is what God has decided to, to be the vehicle of people's salvation. We play an important role in this to, to, to give the general call of the gospel. How, how do I know that this is an important part of His design? Romans 10.14 How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Romans 10.17 Faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. This is the ministry we've been given, church. This is God's call on our lives to put out the general call of the gospel to all those He puts in our path. Consider Paul's words in his second letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Brother, sister in Christ, we have this ministry of the gospel testimony by God's sovereign assignment, so we don't lose heart. We go to work. It's a privilege to be called to do this. And I ask you then, are you setting forth the truth, plainly, and commending yourself to every person's conscience in the sight of God. Oh, I want this for our church. I want us to have a true passion to testify. I want us to learn to be relentless in our willingness to preach Jesus, to share Jesus with others. Hear me clearly today. When we begin to truly understand the gospel and God's intention for evangelism, 
it will feel less and less like duty and more and more like an unbridled passion and joy. Church, do you see the daily stewardship of God's grace both in its application to your personal life and in your testimony to all that God puts in your path? Oh, there's so much that God has blessed us with to see here today in verse 1 and 2. Listen to these two verses again. Ephesians 3, 1 and 2. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. May we be committed to the cause. So much so that we willingly give our lives away for the name of Christ and the good of those He intends to save. May we be faithful stewards of God's grace in our own lives and in speaking biblically and boldly of it to all that God ordains before us for His glory and their good and our joy. Next week we turn to look at the mystery of this gospel unfolding. I'm excited for this time together. But today, let us pray. Let us respond with worship and action that honors God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time in your holy word. You are a good God, worthy to be praised, worthy to be obeyed. Lord, we thank you for the conviction the Holy Spirit has brought, the clarity the Holy Spirit has put before us, that we too are motivated like Paul to live for the cause, to embrace even prison or suffering if you ordain it so that the gospel is going and moving in these days. For our home is with you. Our, our good future is with you. We want to go to work for your glory and the building of this family that we will enjoy forever. Lord, we pray for the gospel as it moves on, on hearts today through this sermon, through others around the world who are hearing the word preached, that you would ordain new life in Christ. We pray for Christians who have been sidelined or maybe never have really found themselves out of the gate to really apply the gospel in these ways that affect real parts of their lives and their testimony. Father, for your glory we live this day. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.